Well, good morning. Good morning, Lord. I hope you're not the only ones interested in this issue. Uh, I'm joking, uh, because it is an issue that all of us will have to uh, face definitely, and I suspect each of you in your own way has had to deal with this issue, that is, the ethics involved with cases of dying and so on. Uh, but, uh, I don't know, six weeks, eight, eight weeks ago, Gil and I were talking about the possibility of another class and had a few other ideas, and I thought about this, and he thought like it would be very relevant and interesting, hopefully helpful to you. Uh, this is one thing that I do. I teach this sort of stuff. I teach a medical ethics class. In fact, it comes up this spring. But I have to admit, I'm, I'm humbled by this issue because uh, these are some of the most grievous taxing issues that people go through, that is, the ethical issues involved with dying. Now, I, I do think Christians have something to say about this, obviously. Uh, and I want you, you probably are well aware that uh, the church is in competition with answers about when is it to die, how can we assist people to die, or is it ever right to assist people to die? Do people have rights to terminate their own life, and so on? Come in. Uh, uh, and the church, I believe, has some very strong and very compelling offers to give to society about this. That is, we bring in our faith, uh, strong commitments and values and hopes that I believe help us to live meaningfully even when we face these issues about when is the time to die. All right, before I start, I want to offer a prayer. Our gracious Lord, in whom all our trust and hope resides, we appeal to Thee that Thy presence will be made known to us that our hearts will be convicted, and that our souls will be enlivened by our fellowship here. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will undergird us with great faith and hope and love as we face these issues, not only here in the theoretical sense, but obviously in the practical sense when it comes our way. I pray your blessings on each of us. This I offer in thy name. Amen. Amen. Uh, on the fourth of this month, I read an article in the New York Times by a physician named Warwachnov, who teaches at Duke Medical. He is a cardiovascular uh, surgeon and teacher there at Duke University Medical Center. And some of you may have actually run across this. It's called Assisted Suicide Going Beyond Do No Harm. Now, that phrase, do no harm, as some of you are probably aware of, is part of the Hippocratic Oath that has been around for well over two millennia uh, as part of the ethical guidelines in the practicing of medicine, that is, do no harm. And from that, most people have realized, or at least concluded, that physicians should not help people commit suicide, physician-assisted suicide. That would be in violation of this principle of do no harm. Well, what he wants to do is, as the title says, go beyond that ethical principle of do no harm. That we are moving in a stage in our society in which it is the right thing for physicians to help people to commit suicide. That is, when they have made a decision, it's time for them to die, that a physician, out of health care, a commitment to care for the patient, should actually assist them to do that. Well, I wanted to spot read a few things here because it will illustrate part of what the church our faith, our Christian thinking is dealing with in our society about these issues. 
And again, we are counseled that physicians should do no harm. But medical harm is already one of the leading causes of death, and in any case, isn't preventing patients from dying on their terms is own form of medical harm. Instead of using our energies to obfuscate and obstruct how patients might want to end their lives when faced with life-limiting disease, we physicians need to reassess how we can help patients achieve their goals when the end is near. We need to be able to offer an option for those who desire assisted suicide so that they can openly take control of their death. And I think that's the key idea, that in our society, probably outside of a few communities that are very committed to a narrative ethic, a tradition of ethical commitments, a lifestyle that is reflective of God and God's commands. The ruling ethical principle in our society is the principle of autonomy, self-determination. That is, it will trump nearly every other ethical issue or concern that a person has. And that is, you have a right to determine, or as he says here, to control your life. And nothing should be able to restrict or limit that. All right, we in our society, I think, are thinking that through. We're being committed to it, and we're trying to apply it to all these various issues in society. And one of the last issues that is being applied to here are these healthcare issues. That is, how can a physician be committed to help a person gain control over their lives? Well, what I want to do is to explore that notion for a little bit. And here, in our first session here, this is the first of four, I'm going to try to contrast what I'm going to call a non-religious ethic and then hopefully a Christian ethic on these issues of end of life. Then when we come back the following three Sundays, I'm going to try to apply those things and think about specific issues. We'll talk about euthanasia. We'll talk about physician-assisted suicide. We'll talk about the concept of what's called death with dignity. And then hopefully we can have some time, if I kind of keep from chasing too many rabbits, this whole idea of medical resources and allocations and the end of life. Those are all very serious concerns. Like I said at the beginning, I think probably each of you in your own life has had to deal with this with somebody. And maybe one day we'll all have to deal with that with ourselves as well. But first of all, what I'm going to call this non-religious principles of medical ethics. It seems to me there are a lot of representatives of this, perhaps none more well-known, well-quoted, and used as an authority than a Princeton philosopher named Peter Singer. That name ring a bell with any of you? If you read the New York Times, the Washington Post, LA Times, in any regular basis, you will run across his name. He is the most popular quoted philosopher in society. That is, whenever somebody has a question like in those, those newspapers about some ethical issue, they just call up Peter Singer. He, in some ways, is the epitome of the modern ethic. He represents this principle of autonomy applied writ large across all kinds of ethical concerns. And so he's quoted a whole lot. And in one way, in some ways, he is a very, quote, modern person. So much of Peter Singer's ethic is a rejection of traditional ethics Definitely rejection of religious ethics, rejection of this idea that there's a natural law that informs us. He rejects the idea that humans have dignity. He rejects the idea that humans are substantively different in not just degree, but in kind from animals. In fact, we are not different from animals. Uh, he has a very compassionate part about him. I, I agree. I, in fact, I agree with some of what he says about animal ethics. 
uh, about eliminating poverty. Uh, but he also thinks through very consistently what this idea of autonomy may mean. And uh, he has some, in my opinion, pretty atrocious conclusions. You know, for instance, um, Down syndrome children ought to be, ought to be a law to, to abort them because uh, they are a drain on society. Um, a, a loving, healthy dog is more important than a disabled child. On and on and on. And one thing about Singer is that he is very logically consistent with his main principle. Well, here are some things, at least I think, that represent this non-religious ethical commitment to these end-of-life issues. First of all, uh, the aim of life for this idea, this approach, Peter Singer and many others, is personal freedom and happiness. Those are the criteria that judge all our pursuits. These are the aims for which all other things are aimed. You judge something whether it's good or bad or whether you want to do it or whether it's compelling on you or not if it contributes to your personal freedom and your happiness. Now freedom in this notion is this idea of self-determination just like when I read from this article. That is, if it time you think it is time for you to die for whatever reason it may be, physical limitations, psychological limitations, you need to keep control of your life. The worst thing that can happen to you is for someone to take that control or a disease or an injury to take that control from your life. The chief aim in your life is to always to be in control. You should be the one who determines what you seek in your life. Nobody can come to do that. Definitely not a god or a priest or a church or a scripture telling you what you ought to be. You are the one who should be doing this. So here, freedom is defined in terms of autonomy, self-determination. Now, happiness to this viewpoint is defined in terms of the maximizing of your preferences. Whatever you prefer, whatever you think will lead to your, your fulfillment, your freedom. What gives you that sense of joy, happiness, desires, contentment. These things that you intend to seek for in your life. These are your preferences. And the more of those you maximize, the more happy you're going to be. And so you judge a decision, A or B, based upon which one will maximize the greatest amount of preferences in your life. Now, some of you may be familiar with this big word. In ethics, this is, a, this is called utilitarianism. The greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of good. Uh, and for Peter Singer, that's defined in terms of your preferences. And just parenthetically, that's why he said that a dog who's very healthy and loved in a family uh, is worth more than a very disabled child. Because the disabled child, let's say mentally and physically disabled, does not have many preferences. But a dog has many preferences and can you know, help you fulfill your preferences, whereas a very restricted, disabled child would stifle your preferences. And so in that instance, if you had to choose, you choose the dog over the child. Now again, for most of us, that sounds just repellent. I mean, how can one ever come to a notion like that, that a dog is more important? Now, we love our dog, and I mean, she's 13 years old, and we die, when she dies, we'll grieve like she's part of our family, the way she is part of our family. But I would never say she's more important than my children, regardless of whatever happened to them. There's something about the way I think about ethics, the way we have been trained, geared, guided, educated, taught in our Christian ethic, that there's something inherent about a person. We call it the image of God, a child of God, that makes them qualitatively different than animals. Now, that's no excuse to disregard the value of animals, none at all. None at all. 
In fact, they're God's creatures just as much as I am a creature of God. But we have been given this challenge, this command, a special place for God to bear the witness of God. And so, therefore, I'm going to value my child regardless. But for Singer, there is no reluctance to make that kind of choice. Why? Because the aim of life is for you to be free and for you to be happy. And so you can just imagine when it comes with you're your, your, your in pain, you're miserable, you're old, you're worn out, you're tired, you're despaired, you're depressed, full of anguish, all whatever, you have no prospects for the future, and what may be there is not much you want to choose for, you could think, well, I need to keep control of my life. I don't want these circumstances to take away my life, my control, my freedom, my happiness. So, therefore, I wish to die. Well, people thought that for a long time. People in despair all the time make choices for suicide. But the big difference here is not just that people commit suicide, but that now the reason for committing suicide is becoming a socially accepted ethical principle to the point where this very significant, powerful, noble profession Medicine. Some of you may be in medicine in this room. And now being shifted and adjusted to fit that kind of ethical principle. Well, that's the chief aims of life. Your freedom and your happiness. And the virtues, that is the way you live, the way you behave, that are relative to that, is that you should always act in a way in which you have the maximum control and the maximum management of your life. Now, there, of, of course... You know, when I was driving here this morning, I wanted to be in control of my car. Right. I'm standing up here. I hope I have my ideas in control. There's something intuitively right about keeping your life in control. You know, I'm, I'm saving up for retirement. I've got insurance. I've got all these sort of things sort of managed and factored in to some way help me to keep control of my life. There's something reasonable about that. Big difference, though, here in the non-religious popular ethic and the Christian ethic is that we extend that commitment that is the very common sense, reasonable notion that you should be in control of your life, like save for retirement, pay your bills, and so on, to determining when the quality of life is. That is, what is your value as a human being? Do you have dignity or not? And this concept, though, you only have dignity if you are in control of your life. That dignity is a result of, a consequence of, the fact that you can manage your life according to these desired aims. And that's a big difference. Well, with such a notion as that, you can see where pain and injury, disease and death are a real threat to autonomy, to self-determination. That these are adversaries and we should either keep them at bay, we should uh, uh, always keep control through health, we should expect the uh, health care providers, the pharmaceuticals, the medical industries to help us to keep these threats to our autonomy at bay, to keep them at orange blinks. And so it's no mistake. Now, I, I hear different numbers on this. If you, if you know exactly what it is, correct me, that what from 16 to 18 percent of our gross national product is towards health care, uh, almost twice what all other industrialized major societies are. Why is that? Why do we expect more? Why do we pay more? Why do we demand more on health care providers and industries than any other country? Well, I think the answer is, is that we as a society 
are experimenting with this idea is that can we be ultimately committed to self-determination? And everything has to adjust to that. Everything. Look at how many institutions in our society are now required to be flexible and malleable to adjust to the right that you are the one who determines what's meaningful in your life. Marriage is one. I mean, look at look at what happened to the institution of marriage in our society. Churches are oftentimes that way. Now, medicine is, is uh, being required to adjust to this idea of self-determination. All right, that's that viewpoint. And uh, many people of, I would have to say, good conscience and very, very smart people are, are very committed to this. And typically, in our society, if you're not overtly claiming a religious principle, this is the default ethical principle in our society. People will always sort of fall back on this, like, I don't know what to do. What, what will lead to my happiness? I, you know, I'm kind of confused about this. What will give me the most control? So this has become the default position, I think, in our society. But I think the church, the fact that we are shaped by a living tradition that springs from the scriptures, dating all the way back to Abraham 4,000 years ago, a living tradition that gives witness to something greater than ourselves, greater than the sum of ourselves, and that's the Lord, we are shaped by a different kind of ethic. We have, in, that is, we here today, we have inherited sort of a moral life. We've inherited from the saints who precede us, from the commands that God has given us, certain expectations upon our life that's not left up to us whether we endorse them or not. We are the recipients of a great moral tradition. And we define ourselves as Christian women and Christian men in our affirmation, in our testimony of that great tradition that uh, has come to us and has given us the blessings of salvation and the hope of eternal life and the power of the presence of God in our lives, just like what uh, Pearson preached about this morning. God is in our midst, and we are a community who testifies of that. Well... In that light, then, again, I, I offer this just as one who tries to you know, make a contribution to this. There are others who might say it differently. But I would say these are the four basic principles, ethical commitments that we have that we bring to bear when we think about the end-of-life issues. When we're dealing about, is it time to die? Or shall we help someone or not in their death? And so on. Is that one, the aim of our life is to experience the holiness of God. That's the aim of our life. Not just self-determination, freedom and self-determination. It's to experience the holiness of God. It is the aim, the chief aim, for which all of our aims are judged. We seek to glorify God, what God has done for us. And in doing that, we experience the presence of God. All Christian ethics has to be judged by that criterion. That is, does this contribute to us experiencing the holiness of God? Now, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of ways in the weeks that follow, but just as a prelude. I think one way for a Christian to help think through these incredibly complicated and very emotionally taxing issues that we're faced with is, now some people might find this kind of a simplistic kind of explanation, and that is, if Jesus were standing here, would we make this decision? If Jesus were right here, would we make this decision? Now, one way to sort of flesh that out, so to speak, one way to make that concrete, not just kind of platitudinous, like what would Jesus do, 
is to have the sacraments here in front of us. Have, you know, Deborah come up here and, and, and offer these things to us. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. All right, now what are you going to do? How are you going to think this through? I think that is a good way to experience the, um, the urgency of the ethical commitment of the moment. And that is, if Christ were here in front of us, this is my body, this is my blood, what must I do? All right, I, well, I, I use that as an illustration to show that this is a way, I think, of thinking through what is our true aim in this choice. What is our true aim in the dilemma? And that is, it is to glorify God, to experience the holiness of God, to see what we're doing here is a way to honor our Lord. You know, the title of this, that's in the, uh, the bulletin, is that uh, the Lord is the Lord of the living and the dead. Our deaths do not separate us from God. Just as Christ is present here, as Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. I think that is also true in our grave. We are with the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are with the Lord. And so whatever ethical decision we make, we have to make it with the awareness that Christ is with us. In a sense, and again, I'm going to come back to this as an illustration later on, and that is, Whatever ethical decision we make concerning these end-of-life issues, could we say that this is the ethical issue, this is the decision that I need to make, that will make me step into eternity and be welcomed by my Lord? Is this what I need to do so that the next time I am aware of the presence of God in my life, I could say, I did this to thy glory? So, the aim of life here is to experience the holiness of God, to, to glorify God. And you know, uh, uh, God has made us to do that. This is not alien to our nature. Of course, we're all fraught with sin, and we're conflicted profoundly, and sometimes we just are carrying great guilt to us, but God has designed us to be able to experience the holiness of God, to be able to see the presence of God in our midst. God has given us a mind and a heart and a soul. God has given us relationships, communion with other people to equip us to be able to do this. We're not wandering around in the dark, in other words. Even in those, and I suspect some of you have gone through this. I've gone through it. Even in those moments that are so bleak, you know that feeling, so without options, Christ is in that moment. Because he's the Lord of the living and the dead and the dying. And those who walk in light and also those who are in darkness. Because of what these miseries bring in our lives. The Lord is there as much as anywhere. And so I have to ask myself, how can I act in a way designed by my creator to still experience God in this moment? Secondly, we are commanded. It's not an option. It's not an alternative. It's not a suggestion to love God and love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. And that's a big word. It includes a lot of people. Family, friends, and strangers. We're commanded to love them. Someone who I know nothing about and maybe even kind of you know repulsive to me. I am still commanded to love that person. And the reason why is because God loves those people. If I seek God's holiness, I have to seek where God is. And God is among them as God is among us very here, us lovely, wonderful people. 
And so when we are faced with these people who are dying, who are unbelievable duress, we are commanded to love them. Whatever decision we make concerning physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, death with dignity, I have to be able with a good, clear conscience that this is done out of an act of love to that person. Not, this is bad, we give up on you, sorry, your life has come to an end, I have no obligations to you. In a sense, if you also think about it this way, if we're commanded to love God and love our neighbor, and just as I alluded to earlier, God is the God of the living and the dead, I also have to love this person in death. I have to think in a way that what I'm doing here is an extension of my love even when they are dead. In other words, and again, I'll come back to this when we come to those issues, we can never make a decision of, about a person's life based upon despair based upon sense of a depression about who they are, that they now no longer have any value or it is time for them to die. I can't do that. Now, Singer might be able to do that. This non-religious ethic might be able to do that. But we who are commanded by God to love our neighbor always have to make that decision regardless of what they're going through and regardless of the pain and limitations and struggle they're going through that all of us one day may have to go through we are still obligated to love them even in their life and in their death. Okay, a third sort of principle that I want to talk about here is uh, the gratitude for life. This is a strong ethical commitment for us. This is something that defines us. This deep gratitude for life. Think with me for a second. In the creation accounts, God makes a world and in each day says that it is good. Light is good. Land is good. Water is good. Animals are good. They were good before we came on the scene in one of those accounts. If you think that, we don't make animals good, by the way. They already are good. They're not good just so we can tame them or domesticate them or eat them. They already are good. Then we are created on the sixth day and God said this is good. But you know, there was another day, wasn't there? The Sabbath day. It's not a good day, though. It is a holy day. God set aside the Sabbath to be holy. That God is present in a very unique way on the Sabbath day. Or oh, just parenthetically. I think we need to be better about that in our Christian faith. I, I'm always feeling that I don't do enough to honor the Sabbath day's holiness. I, obviously, I think worship is part of it. Communion with others is part of it. Uh, I spent a semester in Jerusalem. They take seriously uh, the Sabbath day. Lights are off. Nobody drives. Everybody walks. You don't cook. You prepare for. You work six days to take off on the seventh day. Now, the reason why I'm digressing on this is that this is done out of gratitude for life. The Sabbath day is an awareness that we're grateful for life. We were designed to be good enough to experience God's holiness on the Sabbath day. What a wonderful thing. Why do you exist, by the way? Why did I exist? Why do my children exist? Why does this world exist? It exists to experience the holiness of God, and I am grateful for that. I am grateful that I can meet my maker, so to speak. That I can commune with the creator of the universe. Don't you love that old King James rendition of this, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? What a wonderful depiction of what the 
blessing of the Sabbath gives us. And I should be grateful for that. My life is designed, we're good, to be able to experience the holiness of God. And for that, I'm grateful. We all should be grateful. Life is a gift. The reason why there is something rather than nothing is because God wanted to commune with it. And so we are grateful for that. Also, you remember that the descendants of Joseph lived in Egypt for 430 years, most of that in abject slavery. And uh, God rose Moses, called him there at Sinai. And by the way, I've been to Mount Sinai too. One of these days I'll tell you about that experience. I, I'm still riding the crest of that experience, being at Mount Sinai. But, as you know, Moses goes back into Egypt and liberates God's people with the strangers. And they come and they go back to Sinai and God gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, there's a little prelude right before. The first one is, is uttered, that is the first of the Ten Commandments. And that prelude said, I took you, I mean, because I took you out of Egypt, therefore there should be no more gods before me. Therefore, that is our commandments, the, 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 the imperatives that you and I live under as Christians, that which we give our heart and soul and mind to, is a result of the gift of liberation. That the commandments are done out of gratitude for the exodus. That our obedience to God is a sign of our thankfulness to God. That life is a gift. It's a wonderful thing to be alive rather than not to be. To be in communion with God rather than not to be. Also, if you've studied this in the Gospels, that Jesus walked up to each of the disciples and he didn't bargain with them. He didn't promise anything. He didn't say, look, if you'll do this, I'll do that. What did he say? Come, follow me. He just said it. It was a command. Come, follow me. The disciples left their fishing nets, left their taxing books or whatever, like Matthew did, left all their families, and they followed Christ. Now, why did they do that? Think about it. I, they didn't explain it, but here's my guess about it. They did it because they heard the command. They sensed the authority of Christ, for which they were grateful enough to totally turn over their life to such a call. Gratitude is at the heart of the reason why we respond to God the way we should and do, out of thankfulness for what it, not out of drudgery. So in a way, think of it like this. I don't have a coin in my pocket, but you know what a coin looks like. You, could, you can't have a coin with just one side. It has two sides, heads and tails. There is the command of God, and most people think of commands as oppressive and you know, dictatorial to us, but that same command is designed for which we are grateful. When we follow God's command, we are fulfilled because we're designed to act this way, and that is the experience of gratitude. The commands are not onerous upon us. They're not like an anvil on our shoulder. They are a gift to us to fulfill our lives, for which we are grateful. And so just like the disciples, come follow me. Yes, I'll do it. So these commands that are given to us here in our faith and scripture here are designed to bring out our nature and the way in which we experience that, I think, is through gratitude for these commands. So, with that said, and again, I'm going to come back to this, hopefully it'll be a little more understandable later on, and that is, 
Whatever decision we make concerning when does a person die, do I assist that person? Does this person have dignity or another? Can we make that decision out of gratitude for the experience, for that person's life, for all that they bring to that moment? Can we say, I am grateful for this person and the decision I make is an example of that, an expression of being thankful for who I am with God and this person at this moment. It can never be done out of despair. A Christian choice can never be done out of defeatism. Here's another digression. Um, there There are, and I'm not telling you anything new, there are horrible things that people go through, just horrible, that just, just knock it out of us and just throw us into almost a, a hopeless state. And for some people, those very taxing, innervating experiences are tragic. That is, they're indications that something is wrong and it's not going to get better. Christians cannot be tragic. We are as realistic as anyone else. We even know that the Son of God can die on the cross an unjust and horrible death. We're not blind. We're not oblivious to the misery in the dark world that we all live in. But we're not tragic. Because we don't believe that a loss is the end. We don't believe that death is the end. We don't believe that darkness will choke out the light. We believe that even though there is great misery in the world and great sorrow that just plunges people and just encapsulate them in great, you know, great pain and darkness, that's not the last word. Now, I think this is where it gets hard for Christians at times to be realistic and grateful at the same time. Not to be so naive that you're not willing to face just what a person has gone through or the loss that you've gone through. All of us bear losses of which we we mourn every day. And uh, and I could think maybe from a certain perspective, I think, well, maybe there is not anything beyond this. Maybe there's just life and there's not a Lord of the dead as well. But we believe in the Lord of the life and the dead. And so for that reason, whatever I decide, I must make it with a choice. Even though I have to face the incredible anguish of this moment, can I still be grateful for the life that God has given us in this. Okay, one last thing. All right, my time is quickly closing. This needs to be said as well. Uh, I am a son of a Baptist minister, of which I'm proud. I am also ordained as a Baptist minister. I'm a little B Baptist, not a big B Baptist. Uh, Frankly, I feel like I'm ordained for all Christians everywhere. Now, nobody else believes that. I'm the only one. <laughs> I'm not going to walk into your church and demand that you submit to me or, or Greek Orthodox or Catholic, whatever. But nonetheless, I still feel that way. But part of us, the Baptist, and what's called the free church tradition, is that most of us think that uh, the, the goal of the Christian life is for you to have your private relationship with God secured and, and intact and and fulfilled. That most of us want Christ in our heart and that's about the goal of it. What's lacking in that is this idea of being part of the body of Christ. 
I am first, not just an individual who relates to God, I am a member of the body of Christ who relates to God. We are all one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not many baptisms, not many faiths, and not a Lord for each one of these individuals. God's not my private deity, just as God is not your private deity. God is the Lord of the church. And we are called to be in communion with the saints from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago. Maybe even Abraham, 4,000 years ago. And I am part of this great living testimony, this great witness, that God has called a group of people to live a certain way, to reveal and testify of the holiness of God. I say that for this reason. Whatever ethic that we come up with here is not just for you, it's not just for me. It's got to represent the body of Christ. We are not alone in this decision. I don't bear the truth of Christianity on my own shoulders. We as the church give testimony to the truth of Christianity. That we are a corporate body and we are called to undergird, to fulfill our gifts, to equip the church to be faithful to her calling. And so Christian ethics is about how a church, the communion of saints, can be faithful to her calling. And so uh, as this comes down, if I have to make a decision about when to die, whether I assist somebody to die, can I do it knowing that my grandparents are behind me, or now my parents also, and my great-grandparents, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul, can I know that I have to make a decision that represents them, not just me, but it represents the living testimony of the church? This is a corporate decision. So I have a double responsibility, not just for my conscience to be right, but can I act in a way that really feathers and undergirds the purpose of the church? We are together in this. And that's a great blessing to think about it. I don't have to bear this alone, even though grief is always personal, always. But we don't bear it alone. We bear it with not just our saints that are in this room, but the saints of the previous generation, previous, previous, all the way back to the apostles. All right, to summarize, what I've done is to set forth here two different ways to approach these issues. One I'm calling the non-religious principles of medical ethics and then these principles that reflect our Christian witness in these issues. Okay, when we come back the next three Sundays, I want to try to apply that to how can we be better witnesses and testimony of our faith in these particular issues. Now I'll say this, if you come here thinking you're going to get easy answers. Just check it off. One, two, three. I got it. I figured it out. You're not going to get it. You better just get your money back now because I, I can't do that. Uh, I, I can think through some issues pretty clearly. But uh, these, are, these are difficult. In fact, they demand the best of us because in those moments we can give our witness and the testimony of our faith, I think, perhaps most clearly. Well, the Lord bless you, and I'll see you next Sunday.